Well, hello, and let me extend my welcome as well. Uh, my name is Clint, and uh, I'm the assistant pastor here at Christ Church, and it's just it's great to have you. Uh, before we get going with the rest of the service, I'm just going to give us a couple announcements so you guys know what uh, to look forward to in church life. Um, the first thing is uh, we have midweek groups still on this week. The women are on, and they're going to be doing a potluck this week at uh, Ken and Emmy's house. Um, and if you haven't gone to one of these, I just keep hearing great things. So um, please go. If you want more information about that, you can ask Hannah just here at the front. Um, or later on, you'll get a chance to fill out um, a contact slip. And if you want to just put in the comments, hey, I want to know more about women's group, uh, we'll follow up with you this week. Um, and then the men were really jealous of the food that was being eaten um, at women's group. So this week, uh, the men are getting together on Thursday night. Uh, the women's are Thursday night at 7. Is that right? Um, the men will get together um, here at the church uh, Thursday night, 730. Um, and then we're going to walk over to get some tacos. Because I don't know if we all want to make something, but we definitely will go get some tacos. Um, and uh, it'll just be a good time to hang out, be together. This last week, we looked at the discipline of community. Um, so we're going to try and practice that together next week. Um, and then uh, the last thing to be aware of, May 10th. May, not May 10th. Why, why, why May? We're going back in time. Or May 10th, 2023? No, um, sorry, July 10th. See, you're going to remember the date now because I fumbled over it so much. Uh, July 10th, there is going to be a church lunch after church. Uh, so plan to stick around on July 10th. Um, when we have church lunches, we just go right outside um, to the parking lot right over here, um, and we share lunch together, and we share time together. We get to know each other, um, and there's free food and good times uh, to hang out with each other and uh, really get to spend a bit more time in community. Um, it's some of my favorite Sundays when we get to do that. Um, well, with that, I think that's the last thing. Um, if you have any more questions about church life or anything that's going on, just feel free to reach out to me, put something in the comments card, um, and we'd love to get you involved. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll invite Dan up for our Bible reading today. The reading for this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 6. If you're in one of the church Bibles, in the pews there in front of you, it's page 233. If you're in your own Bible, I can't help you. Sorry. <laughs> First Samuel chapter 6. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send him? They replied, Five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both of you has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? 
when Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites out so that they could go on their way? Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pin them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you were sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory towards Bethshemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and pinned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it the chest containing the gold rats and models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord, together with the chest containing the gold objects, and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all of this and then returned the same day to Ekron. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord, one each for Ashad, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers. The fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt to them. And the people of Beth Shemesh, Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your own, to your town. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, Daniel said to me during the passing of the piece, he goes, wait, really? Gold tumors like gold blobs? Yes. Uh, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but before we do, uh, my name is Ken, and I'm the pastor here at Christ Church. And I want to say to uh, those of you, especially who are fathers, happy Father's Day. Um, and we're so grateful for the way that God allows us um, to image him and to be like mirrors of him as we uh, have that opportunity to father children. And so... Um, Happy Father's Day to those of you who are dads. Um, also today is uh, Juneteenth, which is a day that we, uh, as a nation, are celebrating the emancipation of uh, those who've been enslaved. And so 
before we pray, I'm just going to pray a prayer both about that and about our, uh, about our t- uh, text today. So uh, would you pray with me? Uh, loving and liberating God, you who desire the freedom and flourishing of all creation, uh, manifest yourself among us as we worship you today. As we partake in this national observance of the emancipation of those who were enslaved, prepare our hearts to hear and receive what your spirit will say to us through the word and prayers, the sermon and song. Father, clarify our vision so that we may recognize and equally regard the humanity of all people. Reorient our hearts and our minds so that after we depart from this service, we may be people of justice and love to and for all in this country and in the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So did you ever think what it would be like to meet God, like in person, to actually come across him and meet him? Uh, we tend to think it would be sort of like meeting a, meeting a famous person. Um, and uh, actually, just earlier this week, I had planned to go for lunch with a friend, and we just happened to stumble upon uh, this very famous uh, pizza place opening in Los Angeles for the first time. Uh, the most famous pizza chef in America opening his own shop here in L.A., and so the day we were planning to go to lunch, I was like, hey, today's their opening day. Let's give it a try. If there's not like a huge line, maybe we can get some of that pizza. And so we got down there, and there were only maybe like 15 people in line waiting. So we jumped in, and by the time they actually opened the doors, there were almost like 70 people behind us. So we got there at the right time. And uh, we go up, and we order, and we sit down, and you know, he ordered his own food. I ordered my own food. We had different, like, you know, they give you those numbers, and they bring you your food. And so he had his out. I had mine out. And a few minutes later, they come up, and he ordered after me, by the way, and they bring him his slices of pizza. And I was like, oh, man, those look really good. I can't wait for mine to come. And then we're waiting, and we're waiting. And finally, I'm like, you might as well just go ahead and eat. I'm sure it's going to be here any minute now. And so he starts eating, and we're talking, and we're waiting. And I'm kind of looking around. I'm like, wait a minute. All these people were behind me, and they're all eating. Where is my pizza? And so I'm waiting and waiting and waiting, and I catch a, the eye of like one of the people working there. I was like, hey, you, number eight, is that coming? He's like, oh, I don't know. And uh, he goes in the back, and I'm like, okay, whatever. Five minutes go by. He's, he hasn't even come back. And so I get up, and I go over. I was like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I know it's opening day. I just was, maybe it got lost back there, just wondering if you know if number eight's coming. Honestly, just bring me anything. I'll be happy. And he goes, okay, I'll, I'll figure it out. And he goes back, and a few more minutes go by, and I'm like, nothing's happened. I see him walk by, and I kind of catch his eye. He goes, just a minute. And he goes in the back, and uh, he comes out, and he brings me, like, a bunch of pizza. Not what I ordered, but a bunch of it, to be like, I'm really sorry about the wait. I'm so sorry about that. And then he walks on from me, and uh, over in the corner is the pizza oven. And standing at the pizza oven is the most famous pizza maker in America, who on Monday won a James Beard Award for making pizza. And he's over there making pizza. So the guy walks over and goes, hey. And I kind of heard him. He goes, hey, this guy over there has been waiting a long time. Can we do something for him? And the pizza guy, Chris, he goes, yeah, I'll make him a pie. Just tell him I'll, I'll make him a pie. And a couple minutes later, this happens. So here we go. Can we go to the next slide? Um, maybe? No? OK, the wrong slides. Well, that's cool. They're the wrong slides. Uh, I had a picture of me with the most famous pizza maker on the planet. Um, Chris Bianco, and he actually has a whole pizza pie there ready for me, uh, and and he gave me this pizza. And so I met the most famous uh, pizza chef in America. Now, back to our first question, what would it be like to meet God in person? Well, probably nothing 
like meeting even the most famous pizza chef or actor or politician or athlete. You know, in the Old Testament, where our passage today is found, the way that you met God in person, the way that you entered into his presence was through a box called the Ark of the Covenant. It's a piece of furniture about the size of a large suitcase that they used to keep the most, uh, kept it in the most holy place. And in the section of the Old Testament that we're looking at today, uh, that box, the Ark of the Covenant, it's, it's kind of the main character. It's the main character of like three chapters in the Old Testament. And here as we're meeting the presence of God is absolutely nothing like meeting a famous chef or actor or athlete. Because if you or I were to meet God, according to the Bible, at best, at best we'd fall flat on our faces. And at worst, we would die. And in our passage today, after about 70 people die for going into the presence of God, for actually going and finding him, they ask that question in verse 20. They say, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? And the implication of that question being, no one. And for that reason, throughout the Old Testament, the presence of God was mediated. There was a mediator because God is so utterly holy that without a mediator, you would die. You know, when Moses met God, there was a, remember there was a burning bush, or there was a cloud, or one time God literally covered Moses' face. And what that box is, is it's, it was the primary way that God mediated his presence. And what you find all through, particularly the Old Testament, but all through the Bible, is that when people come into the presence of God, it usually causes one of four responses. Uh, number one, it would cause you to feel uh, some sense of guilt. It's like when I meet people who aren't Christians uh, and I tell them I'm a pastor, people almost immediately start confessing all their sins to me. Oh, I'm so sorry, I think I said a swear word five minutes ago. Can you absolve me of my sin? So one, one, one response people have to meeting God is guilt. Another one is they feel uncertain. So how do I act in front of this God? What do I do with my hands? What do I do with my feet? Another response is, is people feel greedy. So they're like, hey, this God has some power. And so maybe if I could just get some of that power in my life and he could do some things for me, you know, what lamp do I need to rub to get my three wishes? Or number four, they worship him. And my guess is if you're like me, a person living in modern day Los Angeles, you probably respond in one of the first three ways of guilt, of uncertainty, of greed, and every now and again, worship. But I want you to think, what would it be to be in the presence of God and not feel guilt? What would it be to be in the presence of God and not feel uncertain or to not have greed? And that's what today's passage shows us. In our passage today, we actually see in one, one section of Scripture all four responses to God's presence. We see guilt, we see uncertainty, we see greed, and we see worship. And so let's take a look and see if we can become the kind of people who can confidently enter into the presence of God and not die. And so guilt is that first response we see to God's presence here in our text. And if you remember from last week, the, the Philistines, they'd captured the ark, and they had moved it around because everywhere it went, it caused a plague. And so they decided in last week's passage to send it away in order to, uh, to get rid of God, right? to have none of God left in their land. So they're like, let's just send it away. But getting rid of it proves to be more difficult than capturing it in the first place. And so the political leaders, they don't know what to do. 
They're like, we got this thing. It, we think it's causing a plague. What should we do? And so they call together their religious leaders, these kind of pagan priests and diviners, and, and they say, well, what should we do? And the priests tell them in verse 3, if you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Now, a person visited our church maybe about a month ago, and he was invited by a friend. And when I met this visitor, he told me that his wife said that morning, just as he was leaving, and he told her where he was going on a Sunday morning, his wife said to him something like, well, you better be careful, because as soon as you walk in that door, you're going to get struck by lightning. And I think that's how a lot of people feel. It's like if I come into the presence of God, it's like all of my stuff is going to be exposed. And that's what the, the Philistine priests are feeling. When they say, by all means, send a guilt offering to him, what they're saying is, if being in the presence of God shows us anything, it's that we're guilty. Because look at what they say in the next verse, or in verse 3. They say, by all means, send a guilt offering to him, then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. And so as pagan as they are, they get the sense of this right. They sort of get the background sense of this. That being in the presence of the holy causes us to see all our faults and all our failings immediately. And when a person sees that, they have to do something with it. You know, it's why you feel when you're at the checkout line at the grocery store and the magazines are up, it's why every time you stand there and you see the people on them, you're like, I really need to go on a diet. And I probably don't need that ice cream. Because in the presence of something that is, you know, more perfect all of a sudden you see all your faults and your failings. Now, it's what we do with that that matters. It's what we do with that that matters, and this is where the Philistines get it wrong, and I think sometimes you and I get it wrong too, because what the Philistines do is they do everything they can to keep God away from them. It's sort of like being caught naked and then saying, oh, don't look at me, right? That's, that's the feeling that they have. And here's the plan they come up with. Uh, it's got two parts, and here's the first part of the plan. The rulers ask, so they said, you know, make sure you send a guilt offering. And now the rulers of the nation say, well, what guilt offering should we send them? And the priests say, and I'm not making this up, they say, get some gold, melt it down, and make gold tumors and rats out of it, and put it in a box. And then they actually say, and give glory to Israel's God. Now, I have no idea how you would feel if you got, I mean, I'd be, if you want to send me blobs of gold, I'd be happy. Uh, but they're sending like gold tumors and gold rats off to God and saying, this is, this is how you give glory to him. Now, what is it that they're doing when they do this? What are they doing? Well, here's what this part of the text is showing us. That whenever we come into the presence of the holy, whenever we come into the presence of a holy God, almost immediately we see this gap between who we are and who we know we should be almost immediately, and that's what guilt is. Guilt is that gap between knowing who you are and knowing who you should be. And what that gap does is it actually reveals the gap between us and God. And we tend to go for one of two responses to that gap between us and God. Either we look to close that gap, right? We look to, to draw near to God, to get closer to him. Or we look to widen the gap to push God further away, to send him off to a foreign land, back to where he came from. 
And just think about your own life for a minute. When it comes to the presence of God, and you think about all the stuff you bring in to God's presence, are you a gap closer or a gap widener? And the Philistines, they actually, they decide to widen the gap rather than close it. I know it seems on the surface like they're trying to close it, but they widen it. Because rather than seek forgiveness, they try to appease God. They try to appease God with these little gold tumors and gold rats. In other words, what they're doing is they're, they're like, hey, here's a good deed that we're doing. And I'll just present my good deed to God. In a sense, what it's telling us is that our good deeds sort of look like gold tumors and rats. But the only way to actually close the gap between a person and God is through seeking forgiveness. That's the only way we can close the gap. And here's a way of describing forgiveness I heard from someone a while back. I'll put it in my own terms. Uh, imagine I loan you this iPad. You know, it's kind of expensive. It costs a little bit of money. And, uh, and you take it home because you wanted to watch something on, on Netflix, you know, maybe Stranger Things. And, and you're watching it, and there's one of those like, jump scare moments. And the iPad goes flying out of your hand hits the ground, and smashes. It doesn't work anymore. And tomorrow you're like, hey, Ken, thanks for loaning me your iPad. Here you go. And I take one look at it. I'm like, what? You smashed it. It's destroyed. It's, it's not usable. Now, there's three ways to deal with that. Number one is uh, you pay for it. So you're like, hey, I'm sorry, I broke your iPad, and uh, here's a, a gift card to the Apple Store to go get yourself a new one. So you, you pay for it. Number two, we share the cost. So you're like, you know, Ken, it seems like you've had that one for a while, um, and you know, it's got a couple scratches on it and stuff, and so I'll pay for like a third of it, because it seems like you've gotten two-thirds of use out of it, and you know, I only took away the last third. So, so we share the cost. Or number three, I pay for it. Which means you bear all the guilt but I bear all the costs. Now, which of those is forgiveness? Number three, you bear all the guilt and I bear all the costs. And what the Philistine leaders don't know about Israel's God is that he is a forgiving God. He is a God who's willing to bear all the costs. He is, a, he is a kind of God who, even though you bear all the guilt, he bears all the costs. And if only they had taken the time to actually know this God, to actually get to know him, know the God that they're sending away, they would have found a God who describes himself this way. You know, Moses asked one time to see God's presence, and God said, well, I'm going to hide your face, but I'll tell you my name when I walk by. And here's what God said his name was in Exodus 34, verse 6. It says, the Lord... The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. And it's sort of like they only knew the second half of God's name, the part about not leaving the guilty unpunished, but, but they didn't know the first part about his compassion, about his slowness to anger, about his, his abounding love and faithfulness. They didn't know about his forgiveness. And so one way to respond to being in the presence of God is, yes, it's to feel all sorts of guilt, and actually that is a natural response, and we should. 
But rather than attempt to pay for it yourself, rather than to offer up God your gold tumors and gold rats, to cover your guilt, to send God away, we can seek his forgiveness. Because there's not enough good deeds that we can do that can deal with all your guilt. We have to seek forgiveness. Well, then notice in our text, the religious leaders, and uh, they, they go a little bit further. They actually move from guilt into uncertainty. Uh, and that's point two. And, and the second point, uh, second part of the plan that they hatch. And when you get to this next part, it becomes sort of like last week, a bit of a comedy again. So they have this foreign god who is far more powerful and far more alive than they know what to do with. They just don't know what to do with him uh, or how to act around him. And so they do their best to try and figure it out. Have you ever had that moment where you realize you're the odd one? Some of you are like, yeah, that's just me. I'm the odd one. Um, when Emmy and I first moved to England, strangely, this fact didn't hit me until about a week or two into our time there. And so what would happen is I would go into like a coffee shop or somewhere where I had to, to speak out loud to somebody I'd never met before. And I'd say, oh, I'll have a you know, a cappuccino or something like that, and they'd say, oh, I really like your accent. Where are you from? And I'd think to myself, I don't have an accent. You have an accent. I've talked this way my whole life. I don't know what your deal is, but this is, this is, this is talking. And um, this happened to me enough that I finally realized, oh, no, wait, I actually am the one with the accent. I'm the odd one here. I'm, I'm the one who has to, to change something. I, you know, if I'm not going to be the odd one, if I'm ever going to fit in here, I'm, I'm going to have to change something. And so this wave of uncertainty washed over me where I was thinking, okay, in the last few weeks since I've lived here, how many cultural faux pas have I committed? How many things have I said that were offensive to somebody or not said that I should have said and somebody was offended? Will I always be viewed as the, the crazy American? Will they ever view me as an insider, accept me as one of their own? And it was in that minute it finally occurred to me that I'm going to be the one who has to change here. I'm not going to change a whole culture. You know, England is not going to change for me. I'm going to have to change. I'm going to have to change the way that I speak a little bit. I'm going to have to change a little bit the way that I dress. I'm going to have to change even a little bit the way that I think if I'm ever going to overcome this uncertainty that I now feel. And I think when you and I, when we first come to God, that same wave of uncertainty, it just washes over us, doesn't it? Like, we're not sure what to do in his presence. You know, did I, did I pray right? Did I start it right? Did I say the right thing? Did I end it right? Do you have to say, in Jesus' name, amen? Or can you just say, amen? Did I sit in the right place when I came to church? Where do I start reading? The, what do I wear? And this is what's happening with the Philistines here. They just, they don't know what to do with God. And so they're just grasping for anything to try and figure out what to do. And look how this goes. It's really quite funny. Here's the plan in verses 7 to 9. The priests, they say, why don't you go and build a brand new cart? So one that's never been used before. It's brand new. Uh, and then find a couple of female milk cows who just had babies and who've never pulled a cart before. And I want you to hitch that brand new cart to those two cows um, and put the ark and the gold rats and tumors on the cart and then see where it goes. And if it makes its way to Israel, then yes, it was God who caused the plague. And if not, then it was just a coincidence. This is their plan. 
in other words, there's, there's absolutely no possible way, if you do this, that these two cows are going to walk in a straight line to Israel. The most natural thing for those cows to do is to, to look for the calves that they just had to make sure that the calves don't die. Um, and so here's the crazy thing. They have this foreign God in their presence. They don't know what to do with him, how to relate to him. And so they do their best to try and figure it out. And it might be that that's you. It might be that, that you're new to Christianity and trying to figure it out. It might be that you know, maybe you've had a sort of checkered past with Christianity and, and you're just trying to come back into it and, and trying to understand it. Or it might be you've been a Christian for a long time, but you still feel uncertain how to relate to God. And like the Philistines, I know that we try some out-of-the-box ways to see if God is real. You know, we say to him, God, if you'll just do something extraordinary, something supernatural, then I'll believe in you. Or maybe you already believe in God, but you say, God, just if you do something extraordinary, something supernatural, then I'll trust you, then I'll obey you. But you've got to do this supernatural thing for me first. Well, I'm not sure if God did that if it would make any difference. Because here's the crazy thing I mentioned before. Do you know what happens in this text? Something totally, like, extraordinarily supernatural happens. But it doesn't change the Philistines' hearts. They don't turn to God and begin to worship him because here's what happened with the cows in the ark. Did you see it in verse 12? It said, The cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. I love that detail. Moo. And then it says, they did not turn to the right or the left. That is supernatural. That is extraordinary. Two cows that should be wandering around in a field back to their calves who've never pulled a cart before, don't know what they're doing, walk in a straight line, not turning to the right or to the left, straight to where God's people are. Now, it's in this that I think we see the tenderness and the patience of God with us. That even in our feeble attempts to try and figure out God, what the Bible tells us is that if we seek him with all our heart, we will find him. That whatever means we, crazy or not, we tried to find God. If we seek him with all our heart, we will find him. But do you know what? We don't have to look for the extraordinary and the supernatural. We don't have to do that. Now, God has given us a much more straightforward and natural way to, to find him and to overcome our uncertainty about him and to, to have our guilt removed. He's given us his word. You know, Just a few years after this story happened, King David, he wrote these words in Psalm 19. Uh, in verse 8, he says, the precepts, right, the words, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. They are much more precious than gold, than much pure gold, even gold tumors. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Now, here's the point. If you're uncertain about how to relate to God, the very best thing to do 
is to open up God's word and see how God wants to relate to you. It's in his word that we learn it. Now, not only has he given us his word, but also he's given us his church. And over in Galatians chapter 3, it says this. It says, let the message of Christ, the word of God, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Now, what that's saying is that God's, the word of God actually dwells among the people of God. His word is actually dwelling among us right now. And so the other way to learn how to relate to God is in the church. And so if you're uncertain about God, new to Christianity, trying to figure it out, the best way to learn about God is from the inside. In the church where the word of God dwells richly as we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through worship and the word of God. And so here's a challenge to you if you're looking into Christianity I never get this practical. I'm getting super practical. Give God six hours. Give God six Sunday worship services and see what he reveals to you about himself in those six hours. And see what he can do to close the gap between you and him. So that's the second way people tend to respond to the presence of God coming into their lives. It's with uncertainty. First was guilt. Second was uncertainty. And then I want you to notice how God's own people respond to his presence. Uh, And it's actually a little bit shocking because what you find is that his own people respond to his presence with greed. We're skipped down closer to the end in verse 19. And in verse 19, the ark of God, it's made its way back to Israel. There's already been a worship service, which we'll get to in in a moment. But then look what happens after that. Verse 19, but God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. Why would God do that? Aren't these people who are just trying to draw near to God, trying to close the gap? I mean, if that's what happens when a person draws near to God, then who can draw near? And in fact, that's the very next question they ask. In verse 20, it says, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Now, what's going on here? Why did all these people die? Well, the answer to that is in the end of verse 19, where it says, they looked into the ark of the Lord. And that word translated looked, it actually actually means to gaze at. In other words, they, they turned the ark into not a way to enter the presence of God, but something like a religious novelty or sideshow, like religious entertainment. And what they were doing is trying to extrapolate some sort of power from the ark. They're like, inside that box are these powerful things that did these great miracles. And if I look into it, maybe if I see one of them, I can do a miracle. They thought, if God is here, then I'm going to get something from him. In other words, that's greed. Now, I'm not going to say much more here because we talked at length about that last week. But essentially, the Israelites were doing the same things as the Philistines did in last week's passage. They wanted some of God, but not all of him. And it's interesting that God responds to them in the same way he responds to the Philistines, with his heavy hand, remember, his glorious hand of judgment. So we've seen people respond with guilt, people respond in uncertainty, people respond with greed, but there are some in our text who respond rightly to his presence. 
They're the ones who wanted all of God. And so rather than try to atone for their guilt, rather than with uncertainty or greed, they respond with worship. And you see this back in verse 13. Uh, it says uh, in verse 13, when, when they saw the ark, when the, the cows bring it in to Joshua's field, it says they rejoiced at the sight. In other words, they worship. But notice something else. Notice how they worshiped. It says the ark came to a stop in a field with, of a man named Joshua. And then notice what they do. They chop up the wood and sacrifice the cows as a burnt offering, which sounds strange to us, but that was actually in line with the Old Testament law of how you were to worship God. Meaning, they worship God in accordance with the word of God. And then notice the respect they give to the ark, which means also the respect they give to the presence of God. In verse 15, it mentions the Levites. And the Levites were the Hebrew priests. They were the ones in ancient Israel who were in charge of worship. They were the ones who looked after the presence of God in the tabernacle. So they were the ones who, who knew how to do it right. And what this is saying is Joshua and the others in the town where the ark showed up knew. They knew they couldn't stand before the Lord. They couldn't stand in the presence of God alone without a mediator. They knew they had guilt. And because of that, instead of approaching God on their own, they got the mediator. They got the Levites, the priests. And here's what that shows us. All worship of the holy God requires a mediator. All worship requires a mediator. You cannot come into the presence of God without a mediator or you will die. Now, does that mean that you and I are without hope? Does that mean that verse 20 applies to us? Who can stand before a God like this? Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? And the answer to that is both catastrophically crushing and utterly hopeful at the same time. It's catastrophically crushing because if you were really honest with yourself, if you really looked into your heart, you would find the same thing that I find in my own heart, which is guilt and shame and brokenness and sin. And you would find what I find, that the gap between who I am and who I should be, and therefore the gap between me and God is a chasm that I could never cross no matter how many gold objects I present before God. It's catastrophically crushing. Who can stand before the Lord? But at the same time, if the answer to who can stand is utterly hopeful because, because when you get to the New Testament and you meet Jesus Christ, what you find out is there, there is one who can stand. We already looked at this in our liturgy this morning, but in Hebrews chapter 4, it talks about Jesus Christ like this. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, yet just as we are, he did not sin. You know what that means? That means Jesus Christ can stand. Tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin, which means he can stand in the presence of the Holy One. But not only that, did you notice the title 
that the passage gives to Jesus Christ? It calls him the great high priest. Do you know what a priest is? A priest is a mediator. And what this is saying is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate, he's the only mediator, the only one who could stand. And he uses his presence before the throne of God to mediate for us. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. It says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Now, do you begin to see why the answer to the question, who can stand, it's both catastrophically crushing and utterly hopeful. Crushing because you and I could never stand. But hopeful because only, not only can Jesus Christ stand, but he stands there as our mediator. And it says here in 1 Timothy 2.6 that the way he mediates, the way he does it, is by giving his life as a ransom for all people. And this is what Jesus Christ was doing when he died on the cross. He was willingly suffering at the hands of the Romans. He was giving himself as a ransom for all people. And while he was suffering, all that guilt that we talked about, that we carry around, that becomes so obvious to us, when we're in the presence of God, all that guilt that we try and hide by our good deeds, all that guilt that causes us to try and widen the gap between us and God, do you know what Jesus Christ was doing when he died on the cross? He was paying for it. The cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest act of forgiveness ever done. Because at the cross, Jesus Christ was saying, yes, it's true, you bear all the guilt. You bear all the guilt but I will bear all the cost. That is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is forgiveness. And so now do you see why the answer to the question, who can stand, is both catastrophically crushing and yet utterly hopeful? Now, I'm going to close with this because Jesus Christ is not only your mediator at the cross, but he's your mediator today. Back to that verse in Hebrews 4. We we read it together this morning. Do you remember what it said? It says that in Jesus Christ we have a high priest who is tempted in every way. Just as we are, yet he did not sin. And then it goes on in verse 16. It says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of needs. Now, what that means is whatever you're facing, whatever it is that you feel guilty about, whatever it is that you feel uncertain about, you can approach God's throne of grace with confidence and you'll receive both mercy and help. And it can be hard to imagine, hard to picture what it looks like, what it means to actually approach God's throne of grace. But remember what we said. When you're uncertain about how to relate to God, uncertain about how to approach him, What do we do? Well, we look at his word. Because in his word, it tells us how we should approach him. And in God's word, in the book of Revelation, we get a picture of the moment Jesus Christ entered into the throne room of heaven and took his place at the center of the throne as our mediator. Uh, So you're going to have to turn here. Revelation chapter 4, it's on page 1065. Um, Page 1065. Revelation, sorry, Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. 
Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy? Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. In other words, who can stand? No one can stand. Verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. Then verse 7, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Hold on a second. What is that? The bowl of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Do you know what that is? That is you and I approaching the throne of grace with confidence to find mercy and help in our time of need. Verse 9, and they sang, all the people around the throne, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 and they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, And to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Who can stand? Who can stand? Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Do you know who can stand? You and I can stand. And we stand not because of our goodness, but because Jesus Christ, the great high priest, the one mediator between God and man, gave his life as a ransom for all the people. And he is today seated at the right hand of God the Father on the throne, mediating for you. And because of that, we can stand. And so we're going to do that now. I want to ask you to stand as I pray. And then the band will lead us in worship as we stand with confidence and bring our worship before the Holy God. Father, we come before you as those who, Lord, we come with all of our guilt and all our brokenness and all of our shame. And Lord, because of that, none of us could stand. But because Jesus Christ, the great high priest, Our great mediator gave his life as a ransom for us. Lord, today we can stand. And it's in his name that we stand here with confidence and boldness, Lord, and we ask for your mercy. And we ask for your help in our time of need. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray.
Amen. Turning over tables and calling for return to our lives upon the altar, the things we did at first. You're clearing out the temple, you're cleaning out the dirt, for we are your territory. Lord, we are your church. Let's sing, we are. We are your people, you are our God, we are your temple, make us holy like you are. Flock to consecrate the chosen generation, the people called to pray. So help us, God, to please you where only you can see. For every moment matters in eternity. Sing it out. We are your people. You are our God, we are your temple, make us holy like you are. We are your children, set us apart, O God for your glory, make us holy like you are. Make us a place where you delight to dwell. May we heed your hand's correction. O Lord, our shepherd, you do all things well. Your love is firm as it is tender. Your law is perfect and your judgment's true. And as we run, we surrender. You are restoring and we turn to you. You are restoring as we yield anew. Sing it out. We are your people. You are our God. We are your temple. Make us holy like you are. We are your children. You set us apart. God, for your glory, make 
a place where you delight to dwell and may we heed your hands correction oh lord our shepherd you do all things well your love is firm as it is tender do you believe it your law is perfect and your judgment's true. And as we run to re-surrender, you will restore when we return to you. You are restoring as we yield anew. It's our practice uh, every week at Christ Church to share in the Lord's Supper together. And this is actually a way that uh, every week we, um, we surrender ourselves to him anew. Uh, every week we come before him and remember just what it is he did to reconcile us, to redeem us. Uh, and we do that through eating bread and drinking uh, wine, uh, because that's what Jesus did. He told his followers on the night that he was betrayed that... Um, he picked up some bread, and he said, this is my bread. This is my body. Which is as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Uh, and he took some wine, and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Before we do that, I'm just going to uh, read, you know, every, uh, about once a month, we give you some prayers that you can pray to help you with this. And I'm going to pray one of these prayers, and then uh, we'll share in the Lord's Supper together. So, uh, I'm going to pray that second prayer of belief. And so if you're at a place right now where you're just like, Lord, I just, I just need you uh, to confirm my trust in you, to confirm my belief in you, would you pray this along with me? You don't have to pray it out loud. I'll pray it for you. Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm weaker and more sinful than I ever dared admit. But through you, I am more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. Thank you for paying my debt on the cross taking what I deserved in order to offer me complete forgiveness, knowing that you have been raised from the dead. I turn from my sins and receive you as my Savior and Lord. Amen. And if you're able to pray that wholeheartedly, then I invite you to share in the Lord's Supper with, uh, with us. And so uh, you can take your thing there and pull back the top and get out the bread. And Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Remember as we eat together. And then a little while later, he took the cup and he said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, 
do it in remembrance of me. So let's drink as we remember together. He told his followers that he wouldn't drink of the cup again until he drinks it anew with us uh, in his glory. Um, Let's continue to uh, think about and meditate on Jesus Christ, exalted to the highest place at the center of the throne,